Welcome. You are listening to the Fat and Furious podcast. In this podcast series, your host, Steve Bennett, father of seven, best-selling author and adventurer, will be joined by 23 of the world's most forward-thinking medical professionals, doctors, authors, and top nutritionists, where he'll share the truth behind living healthier and happier for longer. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Gary Torbs. Gary is an investigative science and health journalist and the co-founder of the not-for-profit Nutrition Science Initiative. He is the author of The Case Against Sugar, a book with a subtitle, Why We Get Fat and What We Can Do About It. He's also the author of Good Calories, Bad Calories, which in the UK was published under the title The Diet Dilution. Gary has won so many awards and accolades for his research and his writing, including the International Health Reporting Award from the Pan-American Health Organization and the National Association of Science Writers Award, which he has won in 1996, 1999, and 2001. He is to date the only print journalist to have won the award three times. Um, I'm joined today uh, with Gary Torps, who I have to say was the first book I read when I was obese. My personal trainer said, Steve, you're doing everything wrong. He gave me a book called Good Calories, Bad Calories. And I said to my personal trainer, no, this is rubbish. A calorie is just a calorie. And I read it and it transformed transformed my life. Hopefully I'll be around longer now to see my seven children grow up. Gary, first of all, a massive thank you for writing your first book. Uh, my pleasure. Always happy to help. Yeah, absolutely. Totally inspiring and just explained so much to me I didn't know. So, but for those uh, in Great Britain that maybe haven't come across your brilliant works before, uh, tell us your story. Take as much time as you want because I think it's the story that will set the scene for the advice we might give during the hour. Okay, so we should say the book, that first book is called The Diet Delusion in the UK. So if you want to read it, that's the one to go for. The, uh, I was an investigative science journalist, so I have a hard science background. I, uh, in the mid-80s, I became an investigative journalist when I had the opportunity to, uh, to be embedded with some physicists at the huge physics laboratory outside of Geneva, CERN and watch them discover what turned out to be non-existent fundamental particles. So in effect, I was living with them, expecting a great breakthrough as they were, and they screwed up and made mistakes. And I ended up chronicling their, how they realized they had made these mistakes. And I became obsessed with how easy it is to do bad science and how hard it is to do science right. I did a second book on the same subject. I did a series of investigations uh, for the journal Science and the science magazine Discover. And in the mid-90s, my friends in the physics community, of whom I had quite a few, said, if you're interested in bad science, you should look at the stuff in public health. It's terrible. And it simply wasn't up to their standards of what's required to, to learn something meaningful and reliable about the universe. So by the late 90s, I had moved into diet, the question of whether salt causes high blood pressure, I did an investigation for the journal Science. It took me nine months. I interviewed about 80-odd researchers and administrators who had been involved with this story, all for one magazine article. 
And uh, it turned out that this sort of bedrock belief that we that that we should eat low salt diets to keep our blood pressure down was based on on uh, excruciatingly little compelling evidence. Uh, if this was a criminal trial, you would acquit salt. That's the way to think about it. And you would acquit it uh, effortlessly. I mean, it wouldn't take three days of deliberations. A jury would meet. They would say, there's no evidence here, and you'd acquit it. Uh, I moved from salt to dietary fat, from dietary fat to obesity, and found pretty much the same story everywhere we went. Um, Public health authorities and researchers were so concerned that people were dying from, well, obesity and, I, I mean, excuse me, heart disease and hypertension, and they were worried about the obesity epidemic, and they had certain preconceived beliefs, and they just embraced these beliefs without really doing the kind of rigorous science necessary to test them. And in my books, the book you read, which is The Good Calories, Bad Calories Here, and the diet delusion in the UK is a uh, uh, kind of extensive investigation of all these belief systems. It's a work of journalism, not really. It's not a diet book, even though it kind of sounds like a diet book. And uh, the conclusion is, you know, it's, it's almost a joke. Much of what we've been taught is simply not true. And while I was doing this, it turned out to be kind of an alternative stream of research that made an enormous amount of sense, that had a lot more evidence to back it up, and uh, that's held up to testing over time. And that's this idea that instead of avoiding dietary fat and salt, we should be avoiding the carbohydrate, easily digested carbs in our diet and sugars, and they're the cause of most of these chronic diseases we're dealing with. Yeah, and I think the thing is that what made your book so, so amazing um, is that, you know, there's a lot of people write diet books and there's some really, really good ones out there. But certainly for people with a brain like mine, you know, my background is a businessman, is that I needed a book that explained why everything I'd been taught was actually incorrect. I needed not so much to know the ins and outs about the human body and the diet, but I needed to understand that journey of where it all went wrong to realize that actually yeah, I have been sort of fed a pack of lies. And, uh, and I might say, your book was amazing. Then uh, Nina's came out and, you know, the whole story from Ansel Keys right up, you know, through misrepresentation, bad science for so many years. Uh, but it was really, really a fabulous book. So on that journey as an investigative scientist, tell me some of the lessons you learned. You mentioned a minute ago that, that salt probably has got a bad rap as being the villain when probably it shouldn't have been. What have you learned about sort of fat and sugars and uh, what can we help the, the listener that's watching that maybe wants to lose some weight or is worried about chronic diseases or metabolic syndrome? What sort of advice can we give? Okay, so a lot of questions in there. There's two, excuse me, nutrition policy is our thinking on nutrition based on more or less three fundamental pillars since the 1960s when we started to go off the rails. So the one is this idea that dietary fat causes heart disease. So dietary fat raises our cholesterol and then specifically saturated fat raises LDL cholesterol and that causes atherosclerosis, heart disease, we die prematurely. Um, that's gone through 
sort of uh, evolved over the years, but that's the basic idea. And everything else we believed in nutrition had to kind of agree with that because that was considered the great triumph of the early you know, 1960s to 1980s. Uh, second idea is we should be eating mostly plant diets. So this is uh, then fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes are an essential part of a healthy diet. And this comes out of the field of epidemiology. And basically, when you look at what healthy people eat and you compare them to what unhealthy people eat, one of the things that healthy people tend to do is eat fruits, vegetables, whole grains. So we look at what healthy people do and we say this is what we should all do. And the third thing, the absolute bedrock belief system in all this is we get fat because we eat too much. So that's, that's the, the, you know, the biblical terms are gluttony and sloth. The technical terminology is that obesity is an energy balance disorder and it's caused by an intake of calories greater than our expenditure. I mean, there's a lot of ways that scientists phrase this idea to make it sound scientific. But, and I believe this, I, it seemed obvious, right? Eat too much. Yep. The, the word obesity, as I recently learned reading the memoirs of a, a journalist named Roxane Gay, the word ob <clears throat> obesity comes from the Latin obesus, which means to have eaten until fat. And everything kind of depends on this. So the whole idea that the amount of calories we consume is sort of fundamental to all of nutrition thinking. And if we consume too much, we get fat. And what I learned doing my research is that this is absurd. And it's, it's one of these ideas that's, as though I told you, and when you say this to researchers, they're saying, well, you're denying the laws of thermodynamics, you're denying the laws of physics, which is basically their misunderstanding of what the laws of physics tell you. Um, this idea that we get fat because we eat too much is like, or that we take in more calories than we expend is like saying we get rich because we make more money than we spend. Or a restaurant gets crowded because more people enter than leave. Um, or uh, you know, I don't know, a kid gets taller because he takes in more energy than he, there's all these very obvious metaphors that are logically equivalent. If somebody gets fatter, they have to take in more energy than they expend. That's sort of what the laws of physics tell you, because they can't just create energy out of whole cloth in their bodies, so more has to enter than leave, but it says nothing about why they get fat. And what I learned doing my research is up until World War II, when the sort of the best medical science was being done in, in Europe and Germany and Austria, particularly, these clinical investigators there had concluded that obesity had to be a hormonal disorder. You know, there's a famous line from a George Bernard Shaw play, Miss Alliance, where his character Tarleton says, you know, some people just put on weight no matter how much they eat. It's constitutional. There's no fighting it. And this was always seen as this sort of lame excuse that, that obese, people with obesity had to avoid eating in moderation and exercising like lean people do. But the reality is it's true. You know, that was what these Germans and Austrians were arguing, that obesity had to be. We know that all aspects of fat accumulation are regulated by hormones, like men and women fat differently. You know, men get fat above the waist, women get fat below the waist. When we go through puberty, men lose fat and gain muscle, women gain fat and do it in very specific places. So, you know, it seemed clear that, that excess fat was just some kind of dysregulation of these hormones that regulated where and how we store fat 
and this hadn't been worked out carefully yet. We didn't have the tools to do it. And when we burn fat for fuel and when we don't. And uh, so I learned all this during my research for the diet delusion. And um, what I learned is by the 1960s, when they researchers, they, the field is known as endocrinology, the study of hormones and hormone-related diseases, that field couldn't come of age until you had a technology to measure hormones in the bloodstream. And that happened in the 1960s. And very quickly, the researchers involved learned that obesity was, that fat accumulation was regulated primarily by the hormone insulin. So if you think about it, obesity and, and type 2 diabetes are very closely associated. If you're, if you're overweight or obese, it's highly likely that you've got dysregulated blood sugar and you're going to become diabetic. And if you're a type 2 diabetic, it's very likely that you're going to be obese. And now these researchers tie the same hormone dysfunction to both diseases, insulin dysregulation. And we secrete insulin to the carbohydrates in our diet, primarily. So you can think of carbohydrates regulating our insulin secretion and insulin regulating our fat accumulation. And by the 1960s, there was this beautiful story that was also tied into the conventional wisdom up until then, which is that carbohydrates are fattening. Like my mother's generation grew up believing that you know, bread, pasta, potatoes, sweets, beer, were all these like inherently fattening foods. And if you don't want to be fat, you didn't eat them. But in the 1960s, the brilliant researchers doing nutrition in the U.S. started to believe that dietary fat caused heart disease. So if you're going to tell people not to eat fat, they have to replace those calories. So the, the, the carbohydrate went from being something that every woman knew was fattening to a heart-healthy diet food over the course of 20 years. And by 1980s, the uh, leading influencers in the world were telling people they had to eat carbs, coincident with the world getting fatter with these obesity epidemics. So the fundamental message of my book, and that's just one stream of research, and there were multiple streams that led into this idea that easily digestible carbs, so, you know, uh, refined grains and, and breads and sweets, pastries, um, and starchy carbs like potatoes are fattening. And if people don't want to be fat, they can't eat them. And the worst is sugar for other reasons that took 20 to 30 years to begin to understand. And we still haven't worked out the details. And like I said, in, in my research, where I went back historically, because I think if you can understand how we made a mistake, you have to understand how we got there. If you can understand whether we made a mistake, you mm -hmm. have to understand how we got there. Sure. Um, you, know, you go back 200 years and people are saying that, I mean, very influential uh, physicians and, and, and writers about food are saying, if you don't want to be fat, you can't eat carbs. You got to avoid beer like the plague and sugar makes everything worse. Yeah, there was, a, there was a gentleman in England, wasn't there, Banting, who became overweight and uh, Banting, even in the late 1800s, said that, you know, he reversed his own obesity by just cutting out the starchy foods and the sugars and the beers. Yeah. But even before Banting, 40 years before Banting is this Frenchman, uh, Jean-Antoine Briat Savarin. He wrote the single most famous book about food. It's called The Physiology of Taste. It's been in print for almost 200 years. Another six years, it'll be 200 years his book has stayed in print. Wow. And he said the same thing. 
he said he was a lawyer and a bon vivant who decided he was going to write about food and study food. And he worked on this book for 25 years. And he says at the end in the book, uh, you know, I've studied 500 people. I've had conversations with 500 people who suffer with obesity. And they're always telling me the foods they can't live without are potatoes or bread or rice. And this is, and he says, I've struggled with obesity myself because he likes nothing more than to eat. And the way to win out over it, avoid starches, grains, and sugars. And this is 1825. Wow. So one line I, um, I quote in uh, all of my books, including my next one, is uh, the first sentence of a 1963 British Journal of Nutrition article that's written by one of the two leading you know, British dietitians. And the first sentence is, every woman knows that carbohydrates are fattening. This is a piece of common knowledge that no nutritionist would dispute. And, that's what every, and then by the 1980s, you know, it's, it's uh, Jane Brody, who's the leading uh, nutrition writer at the New York Times, and in the, that period had just uh, uh, unparalleled influence in communicating the nutrition science writes a book called The Good Food Book. It's a massive bestseller. And the subtitle is Living the High Carb Life. Can you, can you sorry, saying, sorry, yeah, sorry, we used to sorry, tell people not to eat carbs. Yeah, Gary, you just broke up then. You just broke up when uh, you were saying the journalist um, uh, wrote a book. So can you just repeat that one because we broke up? Yeah, the, 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 the book is called The Good Food Book. It's a massive bestseller. And the subtitle was Living the High Carb Life. I don't remember it exactly, but that's pretty close to it. And she, she says in the book, we used to tell people, if you didn't want to get fat, don't eat pasta, bread, potatoes. But now we know these are heart-healthy diet foods, and these are the foods you should be eating. Oh. And then during this period, because we're so focused on eating fat or avoiding fat, so all the public health guidelines are basically saying dietary fat's going to kill you, saturated fat's going to kill you, that sugar effectively gets a free pass. They never say eat as much as you want. They say avoid eating too much. But that's the worst they say about it. I could tell you to avoid doing too much of anything. You know, avoid jumping up and down on your bed too much. You'll break the springs. It's a kind of meaningless advice. And the sugar science, people are pushing the sugar science, particularly John Yudkin, uh, that British nutritionists, the most influential nutritionists in Europe, are being portrayed as quacks mm. because they think sugar is like, uh, how dare they think sugar is bad for you? You know, this is, this is God's gift to us as human beings to find pleasure without alcohol, nicotine, or caffeine. Fascinating, fascinating. I, 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 I wrote something once, I might have stolen it from you actually, and I said, the problem by saying all calories are equal, it's like saying that the British pound, the American dollar, and the euro, a hundred of each is the same thing. They, they, they all are a hundred, they're all a currency, but what they afford you are totally different things. So getting your food, your, your, your calories from fat or from protein, or from carbohydrates are all totally different things. Um, now uh, I know you've just flown back. I know you've just flown back in from Israel uh, at, at a conference. What what is that? And as an investigative scientist, you're always looking for the next thing. And you mentioned you have a new book. What's the latest learning that, that that's going around in the circle? Well, I'm actually not 
looking for the next thing. I mean, I would like to move on to nutrition because I, again, all my books, I've now written uh, three on nutrition and one on physics and one on nuclear chemistry or nuclear physics. And they're all about good science and bad science. This is what, um, what obsesses me. This is where my real intellectual, I mean, I've benefited from the nutrition work clearly and a lot of other people have as well. It's funny, my favorite reviews of the diet delusion are people will say, uh, this is the worst diet book I've ever read, and they'll give it one star on Amazon. It's a 450-page book, you know, with the history of various strains of the science and the philosophy of science wrapped in. Um, but I'm still trying to get these points across. You know, we have these obesity and diabetes epidemics are overwhelming. Our healthcare systems, the burden to the individuals are, are just terrible and they're getting the wrong advice and the doctors are giving them the wrong advice and um I, this has to be fixed there's no escaping it so and the people who end up buying into it are people like ourselves who we look at the research or we read the books that others read and we say this is interesting let's see what happens and we change our diets and we get healthier and now we think we just did the exact opposite of what we're told to do. And we're clearly, we're lighter, we're leaner, we're healthier, we have more energy. You know, a lot of other health problems tend to go away with, like, if you're hypertensive, the evidence is pretty compelling that if you give up, you know, carbs, if you eat a ketogenic diet or a low-carb, high-fat diet or Atkins, whatever you want to call it, your blood pressure will come down significantly. Um, so people get healthier. I'm still interested in getting that message across. I'm always interested in um, how to change the argument. So even this issue of a calorie is a calorie. I'm keep thinking there's a. It's not so much that the euro and the pound and the you know uh, Israeli shekels are are a <clears throat> hundred of each have different monetary values it's imagine if you're using them for instance like if i hit you over the head with them so i have a hundred dollars and a hundred dollar bill u.s dollars and i hit you over the head and i have a hundred dollars worth of british pounds in coins and i hit you over the head with it and i have a hundred dollars in gold and i hit you over the head with it it's going to have entirely different effects on your head, even though it's all worth a hundred dollars, because what we're interested in is that is, that, that, is, that, is a, that is a better analogy than mine. Yeah, and I just came up with that at the moment because again, I can hit you over the head with five hundred dollar bills, and it's still not going to hurt as much as a hundred dollars worth of gold or a hundred dollars worth of British pounds. It's not going to do as much damage to your head because these are fundamentally different forces at work. So it's been ignored here, where then the, the nutrition community repeats this mantra, calorie is a calorie is a calorie, and it's got all kinds of implications that go way down into how they think. But each of these macronutrients, fat, carbohydrates, and proteins influences your body in a very different way. Your body secretes different levels of hormones and even entirely different hormones to each of these nutrients. So if you uh, eat fat, butter or olive oil you don't secrete any insulin if you eat carbohydrates you secrete a lot of insulin and very little else if you eat protein you eat secrete insulin and then the hormone glucagon which is secreted by the pancreas also and then growth hormone and the glucagon and the growth hormone 
kind of direct the nutrients from the protein to being used to rebuild muscles and regenerate cells because that's what we need it for. Whereas the insulin tells your body to burn carbohydrates and store fat. If you eat the fat alone, you can store it without insulin. So these, you get entirely different hormonal signals. Uh, the, the pompous term to use is the hormonal milieus that affect whether you store these calories or you burn these calories for fuel or use them to rebuild cells and muscles and tissues. And, you know, the message is always the same. Regarding Israel and what's happening, so when I started this research 20 years ago, um, I'd say there were maybe a dozen physicians in the world prescribing these low-carb, high-fat diets. The technical term is ketogenic diets. Um, for a long time, they've been known as low-carb diets. For a while, they were known as high-protein diets. The terms keep changing, but the gist of it is you, you don't eat carbs because they're fattening. So you avoid the bread, pasta, potatoes, rice, the grains, the legumes, all fattening. And you eat a lot of fat and green vegetables, green leafy vegetables, because while they have carbs in them, the fiber and water content kind of dilutes all that out to the point that they're harmless. Um, so a dozen physicians, 20 years ago, half of those had written books, you know, so you got people like Atkins and, and Mike and Mary Dan Eads who had written Protein Power and the guys who had written Sugar Busters and Ducan and France. And uh, today, uh, because of the work of some researchers who started doing this research when it was very much out of fashion, usually because... They had a patient who, against their specific instructions, went on Atkins and lost a lot of weight and got healthier and had their lipid, their cholesterol profiles improve. So these researchers get involved, people like uh, Eric Westman and, and David Ludwig at Harvard and Jeff Folek and, and at, at, then at Connecticut and Steve Finney at UC Davis and they start doing research, and then when I come into the picture in 2002, I've got those researchers, not just to interview and talk about their research, but to tell me that just because the conventional wisdom, most scientists believe fat is the problem and we get back, we eat too much, that doesn't mean it's true. I'd been hearing this from the physicists for decades, and I was kind of, I was properly, you know, indoctrinated to believe that message. Um, and then because journalists like me and Nina and Tim Noakes and then other physicians start reading our work and our articles and suddenly today, 2019, you've, I estimate maybe 10 or 20,000 physicians worldwide who have bought into this logic that the problem with modern diets isn't the fat content, it's the carb content. And if they want their patients, so these physicians are... Uh, they tend to, to cluster in fields like family medicine and internal medicine. And they see what they see are obesity and diabetes in their patient population. Every, every year that goes by, they see more and more obesity and diabetes. And they see the, the negative effects of those diseases, which include hypertension and a whole host of other problems. And they want to make those patients healthy. They didn't go into medical school to manage disease. They didn't become doctors to manage disease. They became doctors because they wanted to make people healthy. And they realized that this is a way to do it. So they try it on themselves. They find out it works. 
they try it on their patients. If it works on their patients, they're now, so you've got maybe 20,000 people. And while this is happening, you've got these conferences sort of emerging around the world. And they're usually led by one or a few physicians who have bought into this and they see how much healthier their patients are. And they want that message to get out in their country or their area of the country. So now you have things like this low-carb meeting in Israel. There's one in Singapore. There's a three or four in the United States every year. There's one hosted by a British group. Um, uh, Tim Noakes had one in South Africa a few years ago. And the idea is to let the physicians present and let some of the sort of in more influential researchers who have the longer time stream and the journalists like myself and Nina who have the big picture and let us explain to the people in these countries, this is what's happening. Take so, it serious. so, I mean, I get it. I was obese. I really didn't think I'd get to 70 years old. I've got seven children. So I've, got, I've got a great reason to want to live longer. I was doing all the things I thought were right at the time, told were right, eating low fat, exercising like crazy, but I was obese, uh, and I feel cheated, I feel angry, I feel furious. Um, and now today, sort of four years later, five years later, I've read your books, and like you say, 20-odd thousand people, doctors, physicians, scientists, going, this is wrong. How long before things change in the government in America. And the reason I ask the question is sadly in the UK, we just seem to carbon cut and paste, carbon copy what you do in America. And I think the advice we've got in the UK, what we call our eat well plate, is killing people. I won't beat around the bush, but we copy really what happens in America with your food pyramid. With so much force now and science saying that it's not fat that's the problem, it's not salt that's the problem. How long before you, before you think maybe your government will take notice? <laughs> that's a very good question. Um, I don't know what the, I mean, that's the <clears throat> $64 billion question. Uh, there are a lot of forces acting against us. So there's a 50, 60 years of bad science and all those reasons. You know, there's a famous saying in science, uh, I think uh, Maxwell you know, science progresses funeral by funeral. So the idea is the older generation dies off and the younger generation grows up with a new belief. But one of the problems here is that the older generation were just bad scientists. They, they didn't know how to do really rigorous, critical scientists or to think critically and skeptically about their beliefs. And they conveyed that belief system, that bad science, technical term is pathological science to the younger generation. So we're always fighting their science, and there's no way in the system that the scientists can say at this point, wait, let's stop, we made a mistake. It's virtually impossible, and if they want to do that, they're going to be associated with people like me, they're going to look like quacks, um, the funding system is going to pass them by. It's a, the quickest way to be marginalized in this field is to say, look, stop, we've made a mistake. And in fact, I know some very good scientists who believe exactly like I do, and they won't say that because they want to be able to influence the system as slow as it takes. You've got the food industry. So the food industry, for the most part, produces carbohydrate-rich products. You've got the middle aisles of the supermarkets with the cereals and the sodas and the beers and the, you know, that's, 
those are the carb-rich aisles, and you've got people, every, all the nutrition gurus tend to be saying avoid those, you know, packaged foods, but those are very powerful lobbies, and they're very powerful industries. They employ an enormous amount of people. You want the industry itself to stay healthy, but then there are people like me saying, don't eat the products. They're fattening. Um, and then you've got the environmental movement. And uh, the environmental movement now is, so the easiest way to eat a low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diet is with animal products. Because animal products are made primarily of, with the exception of you know, milk and dairy products, they're made of protein and fat. We're not made of carb. We have tiny carbohydrate content in our bodies, and that's true of all animals. So if you want to eat, primarily protein and fat. The easiest way to do it is eating animals. Uh, there's a large <clears throat> vegetarian vegan movement that's driven by ethical concerns about the treatment of animals and whether we even have the right to raise them and eat them for our benefits. And they are, they're very important philosophical questions and ethical questions are asking. And then you've got the environmental movement saying livestock agriculture is a significant, uh, a contributes a disproportionate amount to climate change through greenhouse gases, and uh, we shouldn't be eating animals for that reason. So you've got a whole world of people who are overweight, obese, diabetic, people like we used to be, who would be healthiest if they ate animal product rich low carb high fat diet and again it's very easy if you want to give people advice say look don't eat bread pasta potatoes rice beans legumes any of those carby foods just eat you know you can have eggs and bacon for breakfast no it's not going to kill you and you can have you know meat fish or fowl with green vegetables or a salad for lunch and dinner and your snacks, nuts. I mean, that's an easy, easy mm. advice. It's easy to do. Most people actually like it a lot, um, especially men. Tell men to have eggs and bacon for breakfast and steak three times a day or twice a day. They'll be good if they don't think it's going to kill them. So you've got all these sort of significant forces working against what we're saying is just the best medical advice you could get. It's interesting, uh, sort of about the vegans and the vegetarians, uh, both Robert Lustig, who I'm sure you're aware of, uh, Dr. Robert Lustig, and then in the UK, we have a, a gentleman called Patrick Holden who ran the Soil Association for 20 years, where we stamped things organic. Both of those actually have a counter-argument for global warming and the effect that, uh, that cattle have on it, based on uh, slightly different angles, uh, uh, but both of them can actually say that if the meat that you eat is organic and grass-fed, there is actually a it's part of the solution and not the problem. It only becomes a problem when we're raising cattle on corn, and that corn then has been, you know, uh, in fields with uh, fertilizers, uh, artificial fertilizers, and so on. So uh, my, my my statement to to vegans and vegetarians is: look, if you're doing it because you love animals and you don't think it's ethical, great, carry on. But probably you might need to supplement because you're not getting the nutrition you need. But if you're doing it for planet reasons, you're wrong. If you're doing it for health reasons, you're wrong. But um, well, and I agree. That's not. That's probably not today's conversation. But yeah, no, and I I agree with you. It's just I I 
I would like to believe that the environmental argument is true, but I, I'm fundamentally, I still think of myself fundamentally as an investigative journalist, and so I have to remain fundamentally skeptical, particularly of the beliefs that are convenient for me. So they could be true, and we need more research. What scares me is you get this uh, polarization in the research community. Uh, a lot of the early research on the climate cost of livestock agriculture came from, you know, researchers in the world health community and the, the food and agriculture community who are, who are vegetarians for ethical reasons. And then the vegetarians... We, we, we saw that only this year, didn't we, with the Eat Lancet report, 37 journalists, most of them yeah. vegetarians, a lot of them vegetarian, vegan activists. And, and what uh, Patrick Holden said to me was, Steve, why wasn't there at least one farmer <laughs> yeah. on that panel? Give me a couple of farmers on that panel and we might have something a bit more balanced. Yeah, no, and I, I completely agree with you. So clearly it needs clarification. And I try to, you know, I, I live out in Northern California. I live in Oakland, across the bay from San Francisco. Uh, the animals that I end up eating have better lives than I do until the moment that that life ends. Um, <clears throat> you know, I try to minimize my climate change footprint and even to balance out my meat consumption if they're right. A lot of people don't have those options. Sure. So, and again, what scares me, and I, I feel the same way about people who choose, I admire people who choose to become vegans and vegetarians, but they often do it thinking this is the healthiest way to eat because that's what they're being told by those influential researchers, and I don't believe that's true. And as you pointed out, it's very hard to do a, 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 a nutrient-complete vegan diet. It takes thought and work, and supplements are probably necessary. I worry about children being raised on vegan diets and the damage that can be done, although clearly you can get, you know, exquisitely healthy children doing it, but it takes a lot of thought and a lot of care and a lot of concern that most many people don't have or aren't capable of, of giving. So there are a lot of issues here. Um, my main concern is what's best for health. Because I don't want people supporting their arguments as the Eat Lancet group did. This is the best for the environment and it's the best for health. Therefore, we can do this when those two things may not be in alignment. Even if it is the best for the environment, I'm pretty confident it's not the best diet for health, or at least not for you know, the large proportion of the population, which is probably over 50% in the UK as it's over 50% in the US who you know, need to eat these, need to avoid carbs, not animals, if they want to be healthy. Yeah, no, it's a really, really good point. So uh, my, I have a problem. My, my kids think I'm a nutritional addict, and what does dad know about health? He's just a businessman um, who goes and speaks to all these really, really clever people. Um, what, what is the advice you, you give to the younger generation on you know, if you take out all of the bad science over the years, if you take out all the influences, and I mean, you've done so much research over the 20 years, you must have sold millions of copies of books now. What's the, what's the takeaway from all the research on how to live healthier for longer? Uh, stay away from sugar. That's lesson number one, and particularly sugary beverages. And <clears throat> you might want to stay away from beer too, but I don't want to ruin childhood too much or adolescence um 
So that's it. I mean, uh, sugar and sugary beverages, you know, white flour, easily digestible grains. Again, the healthier you are and the leaner you are when you're young, the more you can tolerate these foods. So I think if somebody wants to stay lean and healthy their whole life, they start off by getting rid of sugar and, and, and refined grains, highly processed grains, and that'll get rid of a lot of the you know, non-technical term crap that they might be tempted to buy in the supermarket and the convenience stores. Um, and then if they're one of these people like myself are predisposed to get heavy and uh, means they're on their way on this sort of spectrum on their way to diabetes, um, then you want to cut back on the carbs significantly and, and replace it with fat. So these aren't high protein diets. You're not eating lean chicken breasts. I think the lean chicken breasts is a culinary abomination and bad for the health also. You're you're eating, you know, fatty foods and chicken with the skin attached and, you know, the fish, fatty fish and green vegetables. And you just in general staying away from starches and breads and sweets. I mean simple. It's crazy simple. Isn't that the frightening thing? It is crazy simple. I mean, I was obese. I was 31% body fat. At the year, I walked to the North Pole, which meant I trained for like 18 months, day in, night. I was, I was training like crazy, and yet I got back, and within a week, my doctor said, you're obese, you know, and, uh, it, it, and it's frightening because it is crazy simple when you take away all the crap advice. But when that advice yeah. is there and the government are peddling it and the doctors are peddling. My dad's diabetic type two, still being told by his out-of-date doctor to just cut down on everything and, and eat a balanced diet. It's just now, fun. why is he's listening to your doctor still, not you? I know, isn't that frightening? It's just the way it is. I often wonder. I think it's the hardest people ever to convince are our parents because they always see us as their children. Yeah, I, I wrote in an article. It's one thing bringing up your children; it's harder bringing up your parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they're going to have the same problem with you. So you know, it goes. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they're going to be conditioned to believe that by the time they're adults, there's going to be a different story. That's the other thing that fights against this. Is last week. So, you know, it's funny when I um, one of the arguments against my books is that they're too simplified. So. You know, we used to think fat was a problem. Now we don't. Now Talbs is saying sugar and carbs are the problem, and that's probably wrong, too. It's not simple. And I want to say, well, first of all, the reason we don't think fat is a problem because of my investigative reporting. So I have to get credit for that. Maybe I've done something and studied something that other people haven't done or studied, so I have a body of knowledge to inform this. And if you think of it like a criminal case, if you indict the wrong suspect, for a murder or a series of murders, it doesn't mean it's a complex multifactorial problem and that somebody didn't kill those people. You just, you, you acquit that person and then you go out and you do your research better and your investigation better and you find the right suspect and it still might be just one guy or one woman. So, uh, but we hear today, one of the, the phrases that drives me crazy is, you know, obesity is a multifactorial complex problem or diabetes is a multifactorial complex problem. What researchers mean by this is you can't blame me for failing to solve this because it's just so tough. It's not physics. It's not easy. You don't have elementary particles. And it's like, well, maybe you just shouldn't have locked on to these ideas so early so that all you, I just read a paper today, uh, 
as we were getting on the air, researchers studying the effect of high-fat diets and feeding twice as many calories as someone needs to their subjects to see how they respond and how that affects, how that associates with their weight gain later on in life. And the reason they're feeding them high-fat diets and twice as many calories is because they feel the reason those people got fat to begin with is they ate fat and they ate too much. So their belief system infects the research they do, and then they've only done, tested one hypothesis, so they can only follow that hypothesis. Everything's infected by these beliefs. And in fact, it's funny, when I wrote my books, like The Diet Delusion, I wanted, I was speaking to people like you. So not just, like intelligent people outside of nutrition who could see, put, begin to put together, you know, is, does this make sense? And I, in the book, I say, as you're reading it, you know, ask yourself the question, does this make sense? Yeah. There's so, an old line about Hollywood. Can I swear on this show? Yeah, mildly. Okay, the joke I is... I can always edit it out if it's too much. <laughs> okay, the, I, I spent 10 years living in uh, Los Angeles. My wife grew up in Hollywood. She was a Hollywood family. The joke in Hollywood is, how do you say fuck you in Hollywood? And the answer is, trust me. <laughs> and so the last thing you ever want to do as a journalist writing about this or a research writing about this is imply that you should trust me about what you know. It's like, you know, you get, and this is actually true in science too. It's you, you give them the data, you explain all the reasons why you could be wrong, you're brutally honest about the pros, the cons, you give them the references so they could go track it down for themselves and see whether you got the references right. Um, and does it, for, I mean, you mentioned something about a court case then, which is quite interesting, you know, you have a retrial, uh, if the new evidence comes to light, does it frustrate you as an investigative journalist that you uncover all the new evidence, they've villainized the wrong subject, and yet you can't get the court to change their decision. Yes, it does. That's the um, that's a sort of whistleblower phenomenon. Uh, whistleblowers in, in fraud or misconduct cases in industry or science or the defense department, these are not people who have uncovered malfeasance among their colleagues and had it taken seriously. Because if it's taken seriously, so you notice that somebody's and you work with is, is cooking the books and you tell your boss and your boss tells his boss and they have an investigation that somebody gets fired and the books get fixed, there's no whistleblower necessary because the system did what it did. People like me and others are those that we say, look, you know, the, the classic story, the, the emperor's new clothes, where the kid's saying, look, the emperor's naked, you know, guys, the emperor's got fuck naked. You're telling him he's dressed and he's walking down the street with everything hanging out. Nobody's listening to us. Yeah. You know, but we do get, I said, you find out that people are it just takes, it takes a while. And mm. this is true of all science. And it just takes, you know, 20 or 30 years. The scientists themselves, from their perspective, yeah, I'm not trained in what they do. Um, I don't have a PhD in nutrition or obesity research or endocrine. I'm a lousy journalist. And while they respect journalists because they read them in the newspapers and they know they're very good investigative journalists out there with Pulitzers and things like that, those people are not working in their field. So I'm a guy who comes along and says, look, I've looked into what you do and I've concluded that you're wrong. Actually, I'll tell you a funny story. About 10 years ago, I gave a talk at a the 
largest uh, academic obesity research center in the U.S. called the Pennington Biomedical Research Center. It's in Louisiana. And I give this talk explaining why this idea that we get fat because we eat too much is absurd and clearly obesity is an energy, uh, a hormonal regulatory problem. And at the end of the talk, one of the faculty of this research institute raises his hand. He's kind of an elegant guy in his mid-60s, gray hair, beard. And he says, excuse me, Mr. Taubes, is it fair to say that one subtext of your talk is that you think we're all idiots? And one subtext of my talk is clearly that they screwed up, right? That they spent their whole lives being dedicated research scientists, and they screwed up on a scale that's almost too big to imagine. And so, yeah, you could... Uh, short form terminology would be to say, I think they're idiots. I couldn't say that. <laughs> I still can't say it. I get in trouble every time I say something like this on a podcast. People says Talbs is saying all the scientists are idiots. But if I'm right and they're wrong, that's the implication. They screwed up. I was somehow smarter than they are. It's impossible for any of us to think that way. Yeah. And, uh, and, accept and, that kind of criticism and that kind of implication. But you, you have to strip some of this back to basics, don't you? We had uh, Patrick Holford on recently, a brilliant doctor in the UK, written 40 books, phenomenal, phenomenal guy. And he's, in fact, if you tra track through his books over 30 years, he's changed his opinion a little bit. He was very much into uh, a low-carb diet, but not, not a no-carb, but very much as long as it was a low on the GL scale, it was absolutely fine. And even Patrick has changed his views a little bit. And he said to me the other day, he said, Steve, Sometimes you just, and this is a, uh, a, 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 a Linus Pauling phrase, he says, sometimes you just have to follow the logic and not follow the money. And it seems that so many people and so much science seems to be influenced by following the money because they're trying to, you know, they're trying to, it's, they're being funded by either the pharmaceutical or the food companies for the research. They only then get famous if that research gets published, and it only gets published if they think people are going to read it. And, and you just, they get so wedded to their own hypotheses that... Well, this is... But it's know. not just, it's, it's classic groupthink. So groupthink, I mean, you think about it, like we work with these researchers at Columbia University, <clears throat> we being this not-for-profit I founded, which funded some of their research. And we were hoping to test this energy balance idea, and it became a fiasco. But these guys, they're very well respected. So they believe that obesity is caused by eating too much, which I think is like believing that wealth is caused by making too much money, you know, just meaningless hypothesis. But they've believed this, and they've always believed it, and they've gotten to the point they're at the, the top of their field. All these very smart, accomplished people think just like they do and believe that they're very good at what they do. So they get an enormous amount of positive feedback. It's like they go to the Church of Energy Balance and the Church of Energy and their priests in the Church of Energy Balance and everybody in that church around the world respects them for what they do. And that's what they see and that's the feedback they've got. And if they want to do better at getting that respect, they promote that idea even further. They do research that supports that idea. It all feeds back without even any money being involved. The money is involved in funding. But, you know, and if you were to ask them to pick 10 people whose intelligence they respected, they would all be 10 people who agree with them. Sure. Like you think I'm smart because we agree now. Yeah. 
You know, if we didn't agree, you wouldn't think I was so smart. It's not just we, it's not just we agree. I, I, I read your books and I lost my weight. So that for me, okay, anecdotal yeah. one person, the evidence is there. And everybody I've, that I've met that's overweight that follows it, I've not yet met somebody that hasn't followed the advice, hasn't yet lost weight. And some people have, I know there's a great website in the UK that I'm doing some work with, diabetes.co.uk. 70,000 people yeah. on our little island have reversed, not reversed, let me retract that, have put into remission their diabetes. You know, yeah. the evidence is there. No, I know, I know. But they have, for everything we say, they have a belief system yeah. that allows them to see that evidence and interpret it differently. So that's 70,000 people, for instance, lost weight. So they'll say the reason they lost weight is they ate less. Not that they ate fewer carbs or high fat or this diet or that diet, but they ate less. And the reason their diabetes went into remission is because they lost weight. So these different worldviews have different ways to interpret the evidence. This is a classic you know, phenomenon science, uh, this Thomas Kuhn and the uh, structure of scientific revolutions sort of talked about this problem and described it. But for those people, it's easy for you to switch because you're not in that world. You don't go to that church. Yeah. You may believe, have believed what they believe, but you don't go to the church every day. Yeah. For them, they go to the church every day. They're living in the church. They are officers in the church. If they change how they think, they become outsiders. They become, you know, uh, 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 iconoclasts. Uh, they're... Uh, excommunicated <laughs> now they're us now they're floating around in the wilderness telling people look it's the carbs dude it's not i mean then now they're you know yeah. it's hard to give all that up yeah and even when you start it's funny when i give lectures on this i've been grand rounds in medical school i feel like the the half-life to use a scientific term is 36 hours so these researchers and doctors will hear me talk and they'll think, hey, he's a smart guy. I never really thought of it that way. That's really interesting. I've crafted the talk to, you know, with the history. So they, they, you know, kind of everything in the talk is crafted to get them to, to relax their defenses and let me get to their belief system and then to explain why their belief system is wrong and replace it with a different belief system. And by the end, they're really, you know, by the end of the lecture, 90% of the doctors will be thinking, this is really interesting. I never thought of it this way. And then within 36 hours, half of them have collapsed back to the way they thought all along because it was just easier. Yeah. And they didn't have to keep thinking and struggling. And another half, 36 hours later, and after about a week, there's maybe one guy left who was overweight and struggles with his weight who's now eating a low-carb diet to see if it works. And if he does it right, it'll work. And then we'll get that guy out of a hundred in the audience. Three months from now, there'll be one person who believes, but he'll keep his mouth shut. Because <laughs> he doesn't want to be excommunicated. Yeah. It's fascinating yet frightening at the same time, isn't it? Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's frightening. It makes you furious. I'm sure I, don't, I have not met anybody yet who hasn't got family or friends that have been diagnosed with some illness that we know is probably related to the wrong food advice. So, you know, it's saddening that it's, it's cutting life short. Um, right, let's change the topic. Tell me a little bit about your new book that you're writing. What, what, what sort of theme, what topic's the next one? Well, same theme, same topics. Again, I'm trying to get people to understand 
where we made the mistakes, how we made the mistakes, and how to fix it. So I also interviewed uh, over 100 physicians around the world who have bought into our way of thinking. Uh, about 140 folks total with, um, oh, sorry, can you hear that beeping? That's fine, don't worry. Okay. Um, the, uh, just to understand the challenges to the physicians and the challenges to their patients in embracing the sort of low-carb, high-fat eating or ketogenic eating. Keto is the code word in the U.S., the fad word. So the book, uh, I think in the U.K. as of yesterday, is going to be called The Case Against Carbs. Uh, in the U.S., it's going to be called The Case for Keto because we talk about keto more here than you guys do. And uh, subtitle, I hope, will be Rethinking Weight Control and the Art and Science of Low-Carb, High-Fat Eating, because that's what I'm trying to communicate. And I wanted to sort of write a book that would, again, that if, you, if you're thinking about this, if you're on the fence, if you're hearing about it from your friends or you know that your neighbor down the street or your physician who knows a doctor who's now treating people, I wanted to write a book that would easily introduce people to the subject and the logic and the arguments and, um, and then help them, uh, you know, if they decide to try this. Because one of the arguments is, you know, we grew up believing if you eat a lot of fat, like if you have eggs and bacon, for breakfast, it's going to kill you, right? It's just the eggs are going to clog your artery. The bacon's going to give you, I don't know, colon cancer or something, and you're going to drop dead within a week. I mean, very few of us 20 years ago could eat eggs and bacon for breakfast and not feel that we were doing something harmful. Um, I mean, it's interesting. You'd have a cigarette after your eggs for bacon, and that would be relatively benign compared to the eggs and bacon. Um, I want people to understand what the science really shows. I want them to know that if they that they can experiment and try it for themselves because if you have something to gain, and many of us do, if you're overweight, obese, if you've been fighting your weight your whole life, this is, this is the biological approach to fixing it. So that's what I'm, you know, as opposed to this idea that we're somehow physics machines and we should just force ourselves to eat less and exercise more and that'll solve everything. I always have this vision of like greyhounds thinking if they could just get those basset hounds to run around the track, they could turn the basset hounds into greyhounds. And they'll be fast and light on their feet and they'll be slender. And, you know, what they do is they finally get, we, we've instituted government programs to get those basset hounds out on the track. And what you end up with is emaciated, exhausted basset hounds who are so hungry that when they're done running, they're going to eat so much and so many carbs are even going to get fatter than they were to begin with. So the, these are the things I'm trying to sort of get people to rethink. And, and, and again, it's, it's the message and the research is based on the earlier books, plus these, you know, very, very smart physicians around the world informing me on how they think about it. Great. So it should be out in April, I think. Well, we'll make sure we put links everywhere to it and, and promote it for you. Um, uh, one question, you said a moment ago that you were personally predisposed to putting on weight and gaining weight. Um, and was, was this before all your research? And then obviously, did you then sort of listen to all the, the things that you'd uncovered and then start going sort of keto yourself? Or Yeah, I was, so I was always, uh, I was a chubby kid, not obese, just chubby. I have a brother who was very lean and I was 
thicker and we both ate as much as humanly possible because we were kids. And uh, he grew up to be a rower and a runner and I grew up to be an, play American football. And in American football, like rugby, you kind of want to be as big as humanly possible. So by my senior year, I was in college, I was six foot two, I weighed about 240 pounds. Wow. And when I got out of college, I lost that weight and I got down to what's healthy for me, which is around 210. Uh, at about 95, 98 kilos, something yeah. like that. Um, and uh, then as I got older, as I went through my 30s, I started gaining about two pounds a year. I was actually, I was living in Los Angeles. I was eating a mostly plant, very healthy diet, exactly what we were supposed to be doing. I was shunning fat as though it was the plague. Um, I used to joke that in my LA years, I probably boiled 10,000 eggs and threw out 10,000 yolks and only <laughs> ate the whites. Um, that's not an that's not an exaggeration. Yeah. The, um, anyway, I, when I started my research, I actually had an economist at the, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I was I was doing two stories simultaneously. I was writing this doing this investigation for the journal Science on dietary fat, and I was writing a story for another science magazine on the economic mathematics of the stock market. <clears throat> so I was interviewing this economist at MIT. And I started telling him, we started talking about the fat story. And he said, oh, if you're studying dietary fat, you got to try Atkins. He said his, his, he has a collaborator at the Wharton Business School, which is famous now for being the school that our beloved President Trump graduated from. He had a, a, a professor, a, a collaborator at Wharton, whose father lost 200 pounds on Atkins. And he said he lost 40 pounds and basically gave up white rice. Uh, he's an Asian-American. <clears throat> and I should do it as an experiment. So at the time, this was 2000, 1999, 2000. I went back to Los Angeles where I was living. I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I could eat my eggs and bacon. And if I had a heart attack, uh, you know, nobody would really care. My parents had passed on. Um, so I tried Atkins as an experiment. So it's, you know, eggs and bacon for breakfast and eggs, bacon and sausage. Uh, lunch would usually be something like a half a roast chicken with green salad or green vegetables or a, a steak with green salad and green vegetables and dinner would be the same. And I lost 25 pounds effortlessly. It was bizarre. In LA, you tend to exercise a lot. They don't have cafes and the like, and you have to drive to them. So you just exercise instead of, so I was working out an hour a day trying to keep my weight under control. And suddenly, I'm losing weight effortlessly without working out at all. I even stopped working out for a while because it seemed kind of superfluous. And I seemed to be eating a lot of food. Um, it used to be if I wanted to lose weight, I had to cut portions and I was hungry all the time. Here, I was eating enormous portions. Like when I say eggs and bacon and sausage, I mean five eggs and five strips of bacon and three pieces of sausage. It just seemed to me like an enormous amount of food. And it was so fascinating. I actually fell off the diet. Um, and then about a year and a half later, when I was doing this infamous New York Times Magazine article, um, I went back on it and I've stayed on it ever since. And, you know, I find it it's just very easy for me to maintain a healthy weight. And I yeah. appear to be very healthy. Well, you certainly look it. For somebody that's just come off a plane from <clears throat> Israel, which is half the way around the world from 
California and probably an intense conference. You, you look fantastic. Um, yeah. And for those who don't know about that infamous uh, article, it will make it the last question and uh, uh, let you go and get some sleep. Um, for those who don't know this infamous uh, article, tell us all about it. Oh, it's... Uh so I had pitched to the Times Magazine a story on what caused the obesity epidemic. This is fall of 2001. And um, as I'm doing the research, I begin to, to learn about all the stuff we've been talking about today. And I end up writing a piece that uh, was sort of seen as a, an apology for the Atkins diet. I, the, the gist of it was if anyone had gotten nutrition right over the past 50 years, it might have been Atkins who'd been pilloried by the medical establishment and was universally perceived as a quack, except suddenly I write a New York Times Magazine article arguing the opposite. So the cover headline, there was a picture on the cover of a particularly greasy-looking porterhouse steak with a pat of butter on it, and uh, I forget. There, there are two. There's a cover headline and the headline over the article. One of them was, what if it's all been a big fat lie? And the other is, what if fat doesn't make you fat? And this was easily the most controversial article they had published in a decade. I mean, it was like um, the world went crazy. And I knew it would be controversial. I had no idea how crazy it would get for me personally. And for it's just, you know. And then. Like I said, the, the, the response from the community was swift, and, and not just researchers, but journalists. I had friends in the journalism community who had written books about obesity and had parroted the conventional wisdom, what they were told by the researchers. That's what journalists see their job as. So for me to come along and say, oh, no, don't listen to those guys. <laughs> listen to these four people over here. They probably know the truth. Yeah, even for my journalist friends, it was hard. And for some of them, it's still hard. They still think I somehow went crazy on July 7, 2002 and never recovered. Yeah, amazing. Well, well, well done for yourself and Tim Noakes for, you know, standing up against everybody and telling what we are all convinced is, is the truth. Uh, and if anybody wants to, to follow you, Gary, uh, just tell them your website. Is it Gary well, I have a website, GaryTaubes.com, G-A-R-Y-T-A-U-B-E-S. And uh, I don't blog as much as I should, which means I blog about once a year. But nowadays, <laughs> I guess you have to do podcasts, so blogging is passe anyway. Uh, I tweet. I'm on Twitter, okay. at GaryTaubes. And, uh, and I've got the book coming out in April, and my old books are worth reading. So yeah, in, in my new book, which is called Fat and Furious, which talks about my life being fat and why I was furious, I'm putting all, all the uh, – we've got 21 people like yourself that we've talked to, Robert Lustig, Tim Noakes, Asima Lotra, and so on, and we're putting links to all the contributors down the bottom. Uh, so we'll put um, all those in. I'll probably drop you an email to make sure we know the, the exact name of the title for the UK, and we'll, we'll give it a good plug. Um, the last two questions I ask every – Journalists, every scientist, every doctor, two questions. First one is, give me your three or four, we've already covered them really, I guess, but your three or four things, if you were giving advice to your children or your relatives, what should we be doing to live healthier for longer? <laughs> well, if it's my children, I'm starting with sit properly. Uh, 
<laughs> put the screens down, walk away from the Nintendo and the Xbox. And, uh, the, uh, no, again, it's, uh, you know, void sugar and sugary beverages. Uh, probably artificial sweeteners. If you get rid of your sweet tooth, it's not necessary to enjoy life or food. And I say that having been an ex-smoker. Um, and, uh, you know, if you uh, are lean and healthy, you can eat eat whole foods and that'll probably keep you lean and healthy. So not refined grains. And if you're not lean and healthy and you're, then you want to abstain from carbs. The way Briat Savron put it in 1825 was more or less rigid abstinence from carbohydrates. And I think that's what we have to do for those of us who are predisposed as we are and, uh, you know, get a night, good night's sleep. If nothing else, you'll feel better. That's brilliant. And the last one I ask everybody, sometimes gets very unexpected answers, but let's see how it goes. Uh, what would you like your legacy to be? <sighs> he didn't go crazy fighting the establishment for 30 years. He didn't get bitter. <laughs> you know, there's this fellow, famous uh, fellow Semmelweis, who was uh, in the late 19th century, found that... <clears throat> If surgeons wash their hands and doctors wash their hands before they go into the obstetrics wards, they would reduce the disease rate and uh, women would give birth and would live much longer and they wouldn't die in childbirth and all these uh, various uh, diseases and, 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 and deaths wouldn't be, would be prevented if the doctors would just wash their damn hands and the nurses would wash their hands and he had very significant evidence and it took him 20 or 30 years to convince the world and the uh, Semmelweis is always often brought up as a, as a metaphor for people like me who are trying to convince the medical community. And I say, yeah, but the, the thing with Semmelweis is he died insane in a mental hospital. <laughs> so I would like to avoid that fate. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, wish you continued success. And again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for writing those books. It was, like I say, one of the very first ones that I read that turned my health around. And uh, we will make sure we, we plug your books. And uh, again, thank you for taking the time to talk straight off a flight. Well, thank you for all of this. You're welcome, Gary. Thank you very much. Okay. If you enjoyed this podcast, then why not subscribe to the full series so you can hear from all the incredible health professionals we spoke to. Before you go, though, visit Amazon today and pick up your copy of Fats and Furious by Steve Bennett. And as a thank you for being a subscriber, we'll even give you a third off. Simply use the discount code FFPODCAST and you'll get the full story featuring all 23 medical professionals.